But growing up knowing about Jesus, growing up admiring Jesus, for me didn't translate into a Christianity that looked like the discipleship that Jesus demands. We'll be looking at a passage today that talks about that idea, about discipleship and following Jesus. You'll, you'll hear even people throughout the service use the word disciple. I remember early on encountering a fellowship like this where people kept using the word disciple, and I was frankly just freaked out, thinking, what, what is this? It would seem like such an odd, technical, jargon-type idea, only to later, as I began to study the Bible realize that's just what Jesus and the writers of the New Testament always called it, discipleship. The word Christian ends up in our Bible three times only, whereas disciple is the predominant idea, almost 300 times, of looking at what it is to really follow Jesus. And I always had a sense, all throughout my elementary school years, high school, even into college as debauchery grew, always had a sense that I was indeed pursuing Jesus. I didn't hate him. I didn't say bad things about him. If somebody wanted to talk about him, I'd say nice things about Jesus. And in a couple of those conversations, sadly, I could probably point to both of them in my life where somebody wanted to talk about Jesus. I defended Jesus and felt really good about myself for those couple blips of talking about Jesus in my life. But here's the weird part, is all of that duped me into somehow thinking that I was following Jesus. I was a Christian, or I was a disciple, as the scriptures laid it out. Although I didn't like that term, of course, but see earlier reference. And... But at the same time, too, when I took a moment and I was alone with my thoughts or even contemplated what might have been said in a Sunday service, and, and at that time, I, I was even going to a, a midweek service uh, to try to learn more about the Bible, I would come away frustrated that my Christianity was so superficial. And it didn't go much beyond rhetoric, just words off my lips, rather than the rearrangement of my life and my will. I wasn't happy about that, so what did I do? I brushed it off and just moved on to other amusements so that I wouldn't have to be somehow disenchanted with where I was at the most cosmic of all levels before a holy God. And I was quite content to keep on keeping on along that path. It worked for me. I didn't think at all as though my life was broken. And as a matter of fact, even when I pursued God, I still didn't think there was much broken about my life. I figured I had it going on. I was a, a rising executive, wife, 2.4 kids, you know, the Volvo in the, in the garage and, uh, you know, the, the nice big brick house in the suburbs. But nonetheless, I couldn't help being haunted by this idea that really, really wasn't where I needed to be with God, only to brush it off. And I've studied the Bible with lots and lots of people. I'm, I'm now a minister, in case you didn't pick up on that. And, and, and as I sit down with them, I, 
I see the exact same thing that I saw in myself more and more clearly as, as I have more perspective on this. And I, I see folks all the time that are, are sitting there over the Bible in this small group and they have a desire but have never come to that point where they can be so disrupted in their keep on keeping on where they can really follow Jesus. And that's the hard part is can we allow ourselves to be so disrupted by the holy, by God Almighty? We've got a lot of different strategies and self-justifications to keep that from happening. But in the end, what does it produce? It produced people that are posers. I knew I was a poser. I never admitted to it. I didn't try to ruminate on it too much. And when it got too close to me, again, I tried to think about other things. It's, again, what we all do. Because we don't like the pain sometimes associated with the real disruption of our lives. But as we'll see in this passage, the real solution to having that breakthrough the thing that allowed me to finally drop the treadmill of frustration and aspiration only to get back on the treadmill of, of frustration again was allowing Jesus to fully disrupt my life. And if you sit here now and you feel in any way anemic in your Christianity, a poser, if you were to suddenly find yourself in fellowship, with the people running around in the book of Acts. And you have fellowship with them at the end of the day, and they're telling all of what they did at their day, and then it's time for you to share how your day went. And you think, oh, no, please, not about me. You, you, you go on and talk. I'm just enjoying listening right now. But if there's any sense of that, then this is a keen passage for us to give our, our full attention. Because this is a real solution of how every one of us can be grabbed by the lapels, not let go by Jesus until we come to that place where we can move forward in the path that was always destined for you. You were not destined for a life as a poser or frustrated or anemic. You were destined to change the face of this earth for Jesus. Oh, is that just megalomaniac rhetoric? No, it's not. And to say anything less is false humility. We are given that high of a charge. I, if I were to make it up, I'd feel embarrassed to say it. But it's Jesus who gives us this amazing charge. Let's take a look. Let's pray first, and then we'll read from Luke 5. God, thank you. Thank you that you do love us, and that despite our real apathy at times towards you, and even antipathy at times with our sin, that you nonetheless pursue us and pursue us, love us, and intersect our lives, not only with your holiness, but with your generosity. A generosity that makes us feel uncomfortable, and I pray, God, that we can be overwhelmed by it to the point of finally surrendering and setting out on the path that was always meant for each and every one of us. Thank you for giving that to us. I pray we see it even today as we see a, a, a real trailblazer of this path in our brother Peter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Luke 5. 
Here we go. Cornelius says, jump in. He always says that, jump in. I don't even know what he means by that, jump in. Where do you get that from? <laughs> it's Kim's birthday today. It's your birthday. Whoa, there's a lot going on in that house. All right. Luke 5. Now, just to give a little bit of context, what have we seen of Jesus up to this point? We've seen him stare down Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and back him down and end it in triumph. And from there he goes to Nazareth and he reveals himself through the scroll of Isaiah and allows his glory to peek out just a little bit as the Messiah coming in fulfillment of all that they longed for. And then settles in on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, in that little seaside town of Capernaum, and there declares war on evil. He brings it against the demons. He brings it against all things that set themselves up against unrighteousness. And everyone is abuzz. There is an electricity of tension regarding Jesus as he heals and proclaims and does so with great authority, unapologetically, that he is who he is, and he does what he does. And now as the people are wondering, what, what is this man fascinated by this Jesus? The crowds begin to pile in. And I think it's not by accident that Jesus ends up in Capernaum, where he has an easy back door. What is that back door? The Sea of Galilee. Jews do not like the water. I'm not saying that is like a universal thing today. First century Jews did not like the water. That was an unknown place of the abyss and of unfathomable evils that were there. And, and so if Jesus needed to be able to focus on his real mission rather than have the crowds distracting him from the clarity of what he was he needed to accomplish, he could simply find a few fishermen to befriend and move on away and focus on discipling those who really were ready to be discipled and to make a big difference that Jesus had in mind. And so now we come to Jesus having healed Peter's mother-in-law the night before, and now, soon after that event, Jesus is down right there in Capernaum, right there where Peter and the apostles uh, are, are living, some of the apostles, uh, James, John, Andrew are all there, that's, that's Peter's brother, and, and they're all there, and the crowds are beginning to, to pile in, and here we pick it up in Luke 5. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another word for the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias. It's called the Sea of Gennesaret because if you remember on the map last week, the shape of it looks like a harp. And Genner is the word for harp. So that's why it's called that too. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So this is the normal approach of, a, of an itinerant preacher, of a rabbi, as Jesus is clearly in that mode here. You sit down as you begin to teach, 
Still no stool, by the way, just mentioning. And as he began to teach the people, there's a bit of a natural amphitheater that's there in this area. Let me see if I have... Uh, Bishop, can you advance that slide? For those of you who are visiting, there's not some bishop back there. That's his first name. <laughs> oh, this is one of my alternate titles for the sermon, but I didn't go with that. Sleepless in sea, addled. They don't sleep, and addled means that you're either confused in your brain or you're rotten, like an addled brain or an addled egg. Either way, confused, rotten. I, I went through all that. Though, put it, uh, one more, Bishop. We've got to get off of this slide. <laughs> and this, this is where we now stand in the great arc of the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus has now stared down the devil, unveiled his messianic identity, he has declared war on all things evil, and now he begins to unfurl his great plan. His great plan that, by the way, you're not sitting here as spectators, you're sitting here as participants in this great plan. Uh, one more, please. All right. So I, I don't know if you can get a, a, a visual on this at all, but this is the Sea of Galilee. We've been there a couple times. And it is uh, a natural amphitheater right near Capernaum. So as Jesus would have come out into the sea on the boat, the crowds would have been able to be accommodated by the natural slope of the shoreline. And the acoustics are quite good because uh, the... Word, word travels over the sea so long as there's no wind and, and, and all is good. And so Jesus is able to do exactly that. Use this as an amphitheater for himself from the boat. And it's in this boat, by the way, uh, can, you, can you go ahead and uh, go another slide? Uh, that's Debbie, by the way. And here, this is uh, the Museum of the Ancient Boat in Capernaum. And here's, this is mind-blowing if this is the, the boat. It's called the Jesus Boat. But it's wood. 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 I mean, not, you know, I, I see things as I travel the world that are stone that are preserved from a couple thousand years. But this is a stinking wood boat. And remarkably, it began to show through the mud and the muck of the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, where? Right in this very spot that we're talking about. And this boat, once they did the dating of it, turned out to be from right at this exact time. Early first century boat. And identified to meet all of the, uh, the requirements of a boat to hold about a dozen guys. It's about 30 feet long. And it's it kind of, you know, a goosebump time while you're over there to be able to see this. Can you go ahead and uh, advance again? There's a, uh, a video that just shows you how this boat has been... Uh, kind of uh, preserved there. I know it's, it's not the, the greatest of, of visuals because of the darkness of the screen. But what they were able to do is encase this whole boat in foam to protect it from the elements as soon as it came out of the mud. The mud had supposedly found, found a, uh, a way to preserve it in just the right place. And they were able to keep all of the pieces in place and ultimately to uh, preserve it sufficiently and put it on display here as you see it. You can go one more slide. Um, thanks. So we'll, we'll leave it there. So we'll talk about that in a moment. And, and so it's, it's in this boat. Or actually, maybe go back one just so we can see, see the boat. Thanks. So it's in this boat where the rest of this scene plays out. 
But is this a kiss from God or what? Even if it's not the Jesus boat, it is a fishing boat from right around 30 AD. How, how amazing is that? And it's wood. It's wood. Have I mentioned? The thing is wood. What in the world? It's like, it's like your, your shoe making it until the year 4,000. Like what are the chances? And here we have it. And it's wood. Okay. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. I know we're familiar with this story, and for a lot of you, I'm restating some of the obvious. However, it bears repeating. Now, fishermen trying to get this tilapia-type fish in the Sea of Galilee would have fished at night. That's when they feed, once the sun comes up. That's when they, they submerge down to um, away from, uh, uh, from everything. But when they feed is during those evening hours. And in the best chance for them to, to be able to be caught. And so they fished all night and did not catch a thing. Has anybody here ever gone out fishing for a prolonged period of time and not caught a thing? There you go. Have any of the sisters, by the way? <laughs> there you go. I'll get all those hands. All right. Amen. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really discouraging when that goes on. And you know, the other day I was, I was watching fishing on TV and I, I thought, and they're catching everything. But, but then I thought to myself, you know, I'm such a loser. Not, not only am I not like fishing, which is not the most exciting thing, but I'm actually watching fishing as I sit on my couch here on TV. And of course, what I'm watching is the ESPN highlight reel of 10 hours of fishing condensed into nine minutes. And it's, you know, two fish caught during that, that period of time. But most fishing trips really do end, as far as my experience goes, with just a sense of emptiness. <laughs> and, and, and for me, because it's happened so many times, it's not just emptiness, but it's the idea of, I'm cursed. <laughs> it's pretty certain now. How many times in a row? And... And these fellows, this is their business. So <laughs> for, for them to come home after a long night of fishing and goose egg in the process, that's not just, oh, isn't that unsatisfactory? No, that's, how are we going to eat? What are we going to sell? How, how's this going to work? Be, there's a whole lot more that's on the line there. And, and so they're in this state and here's the encouraging part about them is their self-discipline that despite being in this state, here's my temptation at the end of a lame day like that. You know what? L let's just go get some sleep. We'll clean the nets and get them ready before we go out tomorrow night. But they don't. They get to it right then and there. At the end of an awful experience, they then have the incredibly pleasant experience of scrubbing all the silt and muck and mess off of their nets. And it's just at the moment that they're getting their nets clean and they can finally go home and put it all behind them that their lives are interrupted yeah. Yeah. by Jesus. 
And just as they're ready to go to sleep with their clean nets, Jesus comes and says, put out into deep water and not just let's get away from the crowd so I can teach you. Now those clean nets that you had, I want you to go ahead and throw them into the filthy water, okay? Let's get some more muck and mire on them. Let's prolong this sleepless night that you've had a couple more hours. How's that sound to you? He says, let down your nets. Now he says to Peter, the way that um, in the original language you can tell if he's talking to one person or multiple people by the way the verb is conjugated. But it's to Peter where he says to him, "Put, put this boat out into deep water. And then to the rest of the folks that are on the boat, he then says, and let down the nets for a catch. So apparently there's a large net that's not just Peter who's going to be able to do it, but it's a teamwork type net that is required here. So Simon answers, and what would you say to a carpenter who's asked you to do this? Now granted, this carpenter did heal your mother-in-law the night before. Whether that's a positive or a negative, the text doesn't say. But he did heal her. And he did it by rebuking her fever and out it went. And and so in a sense, Peter's got to be thinking, I I owe this guy one, for sure. I mean, she would have died. It was a great fever, not just a regular fever. and uh, It was was a uh, traumatic situation. And so, all right, I got to give him that. So we'll take the boats out. And you know what? I'll even humor him to the point where these clean nets, I'll go ahead and dirty them on up again. It's the least I could do. But he says to him, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Not because what you're saying makes so much sense. Not because I believe like you believe that this is the best time to go fishing and to drop the nets right over there is the exact right thing to do. No, none of that made sense to him at all. And there's maybe a subtext here of sarcasm or, if not that, humoring Jesus a bit with, okay, door framer, I'll, I'll take your fishing advice. Let's, let's do this thing. But he calls him master, which at first glance you think, wow, isn't that, that's a pretty nice term. It is a, a fairly positive, respectful, subordinate term that he uses there. It's epistates. But it's only used in Luke, this word. And it's only used when the Christians or the disciples are deeply confused about the nature of Jesus. It happens again in Luke 8 in a couple different places. Uh, The first is they're out in this same boat. They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and the wind is whipping up and they're about to drown and Jesus is taking a nap in the bow. And as they go to wake up Jesus, they say, Master, Master, don't you care that we're going to drown? Well, that master is epistates that is used there. Later, when uh, they come back to shore, there's a woman who makes her way through the crowd. She's desperate because she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's lost all her money trying to solve this dilemma. She weaves her way through the crowd kind of does a, you know, a, a, a diving you know, touch of the hem of Jesus' garment, and in doing so, is healed, amazingly. Jesus looks around and says, who touched me? 
And Peter says, hey, with all these people crowding in, Master, you, you ask who touched you? Again, not the most, using Master, sure, but not the most positive. It's, it's the idea more of boss. Like, yeah, boss, we'll put him down. Yeah, boss, don't you care that we're going to drown? Sure, boss, somebody touched you, but how are we going to figure this one out? Later on, when Jesus invites Peter to go to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and there Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses, and, and God is before them, and he's transformed, and he looks like lightning, and he's magnificent. And Peter then says, boss, or epistates, it's good for us to be here, because we can make three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Good thing we're here, eh? And again, it, it, it's interesting that the, the biblical writers have to put a bit of an appen, a, a, a parenthetical statement there. And what does the parenthetical statement says? Peter, Peter didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> but in this, not knowing what he was talking about, he's using the same boss instead of Lord as he's coming before Jesus. And the, the last time is they come down from that mountain and the disciples who are down at the bottom are trying to help out a, a, a boy who has been just wrecked by a demon, throwing him into water, trying to drown him, seizures, horrible stuff. And when they see Jesus, they're totally frazzled because they can't do anything good. The crowds are coming down on them and, and, and they, they, they see to Jesus, boss, boss, can you do something about this? That's when Jesus is like, bring the boy to me. You know, and all goes well. But it's in every moment where their faith is not where it needs to be. They're, they're all in with Jesus to some degree. They think he's all that, but their fascination hasn't really evolved beyond, yeah, you got some good stuff going on, boss, but we're, we're still a bit miffed in, in how this thing's all supposed to work out. But I, I say all that because those are the only times the word is used by the Christians. All the other times where it's that term of, of subordinate respect, it's Lord instead of boss. And Lord is kurios or kurios. So Simon answered, boss, we worked hard all night. You haven't caught, we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish. The word there for large number of fish is uh, plethos, where we get the English word plethora, which means, you know, a large amount so, for example, you might say that you have a plethora of, oh, piñatas, for example. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> it's Three Amigos, if you haven't seen it. But it's one of the high points of the movie Three Amigos, where he asks, would you say you have a plethora of piñatas? Well, nonetheless, plethora is this idea of a great multitude. And... Keep that in mind because this is what's going to be brought in. When they had done so, they caught such a plethora of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat. Notice they don't shout to their partners in the other boat because there's a whole lot of fishermen boats that are lined up along the Sea of Galilee at that moment. The word travels easily and amongst fishermen, word travels fast. You just see somebody turning when you're out on the sea and everybody's like, whoa, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? So they're, they're kind of like, uh, you know, check it out. And, and so their, their partners do come over to help them with this large number of fish. And they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, 
He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. This is a pivot that I wouldn't have expected in the story. And it's so disrupting that many people who criticize the Bible even have asserted that this has been inserted years later because it seems to not flow with what was just going on. Many would think that the natural reaction of a fisherman is, this is the greatest day of my life. When I do pray, which is not often, I pray for this, for the greatest haul that we could ever have. As I sit, casting, pulling in, casting, pulling in, and I pray for this, and nothing ever happens, and now, finally, the greatest haul of all time. Call Guinness, we just did it. And this is, I mean, this is bonanza, jackpot, glory, hallelujah, for, for a fisherman at this moment in time. And instead of Peter saying, uh, uh, sorry about all those uh, boss, okay, I'll do so because you say so. Do you think you could come fishing with us every day? Like, is there any way you can work that out? You preach for a little while from the boat, we go out for like, let's say 15 minutes like we did this time, and we come on in, and we're going to be dancing in the big box at the end of this. But it's, it's not his reaction. Even though it's potential treasure beyond anything that he could have imagined as a fisherman, it is instead a moment for him to fall at the feet, not of the boss, but of the Lord. He gets it right. And he also gets something right about himself. I am a sinful man. For he, he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, where it then sank in the mud, and we found it 2,000 years later, and followed him. And we'll talk about following in just a moment. But here's what I want to talk about, is this whole process that I was talking about earlier, of instead of just dabbling a little bit in the scriptures, dabbling a little bit in Jesus, feeling frustrated, feeling as though I'm not where I need to be, when I think about talking about my Christianity, feeling like a poser, how is it that all of that can get busted up, blown up, and interrupted? Well, here's how it happens. Is we allow ourselves to go from fascination of Jesus to coming right before Jesus fully. Jesus had been operating throughout Capernaum in a crowd at a bit of a distance from Peter. It became closer to home, in his home, when his mother-in-law was healed. But apparently to Peter, it really hits close to home when you're talking about his boat. Because that's where he really does. He doesn't spend that much time in his home in comparison in his boat. And we've got to be able to allow Jesus to come into full view for us as well. Yes. And if, if, if right now, if right now you're not experiencing, go ahead and uh, move, move forward one, if you don't mind, Bishop. And one more, please. And the path, the path that Peter takes is one of fascination, 
sees Jesus moving throughout Capernaum, amazed at what he does, casting out demons, curing all diseases throughout the entire village, including in his own home. And then it goes from that fascination at arm's length to an appreciation of just who this cat is. And he is something more than a rabbi who can do some miraculous things. As he hits Peter where he lives, and he begins to understand Jesus more clearly, and for Peter to understand him more clearly is in his own occupation. For us, it's not as though Jesus is going to come to where you do data processing and fill in numbers faster than you could ever fill in. That's not how we're going to see Jesus more remarkably. The way that that's going to happen is by us seeking to see Jesus so squarely in the way that the Holy Spirit has provided for us. It's through this inspired, captured word. God was able to keep that boat. Well, he was also able to keep Jesus in full view through his inspired word. And let me encourage you. Go into the scriptures. Look through this Gospel of Luke. Look through the the, the passages that really do show you Jesus in action before your eyes and allow Him to become vivid before your very sight. And when He does, the prayer is, is that you will appreciate Him the same way that Peter does. Here's what happens though for me in, in my past is that, yeah, I would, I would read of Jesus. I would marvel at Jesus. I love the stories about Jesus. I love the songs about Jesus. My kids love the veggie tales about Jesus. But it still was at arm's length. It still was stories of Jesus and those guys. Jesus and generalities. It's got to be Jesus and you. And to recognize He came to live this life of righteousness so that it could be your righteousness. He did all of this because He personally wants to see you in that chain of discipleship following Him just as others have done further up that chain before you. But all before the same Jesus. And here's what we do. Is we keep it general or we keep it vague. You can't do either of those things if you want to have the breakthrough. Get in there and see Jesus. If you're not able to see it, grab somebody else. And I dare say, if you've not been able to up until this point in time, sit down with somebody else and take your time through some great passages of Jesus and let him pop out before us as the scriptures intend so that we can experience Jesus as the Holy Spirit wants us to experience Jesus. And... After, after that, what always happens when that happens to us is we then see ourselves. Because we know that Jesus is not there for generalities. Jesus is there for the specificity of me. And when he's there for the specificity of me and it's this Jesus, the reaction is the same reaction that Peter has. Not, wow, you're impressive, but wow, you are holy. You have unblemished holiness and unfathomable power and I am before you right now and the end result of that if you can go to the next slide the next slide the, the, the next part of this is that we end up 
with an appreciation of ourselves. That combination of unblemished holiness and unlimited grace is a potent combo. Especially when we're just beginning to realize how holy He is, how filthy we are. And in the moment that we're overwhelmed by our own filth, and the only thing that will keep you from that, by the way, is pride. If you encounter Jesus and come away thinking, wow, that was great, and so am I. It wasn't what the Holy Spirit intended as He's trying to disrupt your life. But as you encounter unblemished holiness, appreciating your depth of filth, but then at the same moment, brought with that is a Jesus who brings unlimited grace. Lavished, without limit, upon you. And it's true. And you can connect it biblically and with security of doing it biblically. The end result of that is always unstoppable passion. Who me? How me? You to me. My goodness. And if your life is not a life that is marked by excitedly leaving everything to follow Jesus... And go fish for men. Go help others know this potent combo of holiness and grace. If, if that's not on your radar, if you look over your last week and it has not been the case that this is the, the real purpose for why it is that God wakes you up each day, if that doesn't register at all, that's fine. Jesus has a solution for it. It's not self-improvement. It's not think more positively. It's not get more disciplined. It's come before the holy God. It happens over and over again through Scripture. When Ezekiel counters God, he is overwhelmed. But in the end, what a servant. When Isaiah is brought before the very throne of God in Isaiah 6, he doesn't even want to look up at God. He just sees the train of his robe. And all the accoutrement that surround it with the angels and the seraphim and the uh, cherubim and, and all the grandeur of that and, and just kind of peeking up a little bit under the sun visor of his hand to see just the robe filling the temple. What does Isaiah say? Same thing Peter says. I am ruined. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I have encountered God. And in both instances, whether it's Isaiah or Peter, it's the same response from God. It's an immediate reassurance of don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And, and fear is a normal response before unblemished holiness because of our filth. Don't be afraid. And now that I have set things right, here's what I want you to do. To Isaiah... He says, who shall go? Whom shall I send? And what does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. And Peter, what does he say? When it all connects, unblemished holiness, filth, unlimited grace, what does he say in the end? 
Goodbye, boat. Hello, purpose. And it's all passion, all the time, forward. And he says, just as you were catching fish here, you're going to catch men there. Not just a little. The, the plethora of fish that were caught here, later on, when Peter has his moment to step forward for Jesus, Acts 2, verse 6, it says there was a plethora in the Greek of a crowd. And that day, 3,000 were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ at the preaching of Peter. Later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, this is where Peter almost needs like, he needs his own theme music at this point in, in the book of Acts. You know, it's like, like hell to the chief or dun, 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 but positive, not Darth Vader-ish. As he, as he just walks through the crowd, it says a plethora of people were all coming to the Lord. And you know what it says right after that? Even as Peter walked by and his shadow just fell over people, they were healed. Yeah. What? <laughs> but he was a man who allowed his life to be disrupted. Yeah. And, and just as he yearned to, to have that, that bounty in secular terms, Jesus helped him to see that ain't nothing. The bounty is in your passion for all things holy. To live your life in alignment with my will now that you see me, know me, and can align with me. And this is what he gives every one of us. And if we're not here at unstoppable passion, don't kid yourself into thinking that it's going to come by better discipline or better practices. It's only going to come by allowing yourself to really see Jesus. To know Trembling before him, his holiness, and by contrast, our own filth. How completely undeserving we are to have this encounter. How absurd it is that the God of all the universe would have this encounter. Intersect time and place. Arrange everything so that I could know him, that you could know him. How absurd that is. But yet it's the truth. And it's reinforced by all that we are given in his word. And then to have the assurance at that moment of greatest despair of, of anything that we can do of ourselves, at that moment to be reassured by a grace without limit that this is for you. You were meant for this. I did this for you. Not in general, but for you. You have been lavished with this grace by God. What are you going to do? Let it be that we appreciate this fully. And in the end, we're excited about leaving it all, doing all we can to make a great difference in alignment with the will of this Jesus who has intersected our lives and interrupted the keep on keeping on of the, the meaninglessness of a, of a life just lived for the here and now. And from now on, he says, from now on, live your life with purpose. From now on, fish for people. From now on, now that you get it, don't go back. From now on, off we go to make this great difference. We're seeing Jesus. I love the Gospel of Luke. We're all seeing Jesus. We're coming before Him, appreciating Him fully, seeing ourselves, and at the same time as it becomes fearful, reassured by this same Jesus. As you get this, let it be evident. Let it be from now on. Off we go. And if there's any part of you right now 
that is not ready to just, Wah, let's go! Amen, Jesus, let's do this thing. Then, then I caution you, grab somebody and make sure that you're understanding one of those first two parts of the equation. And there's no shortcut. If your pride is keeping you from seeing your filth, if your um, apathy is keeping you from beholding the unblemished holiness, or if your tradition is keeping you from understanding the clarity of His unlimited grace, work it out. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake to be a poser. There's too much at stake to be frustrated. There's too much at stake to be anemic. There's too much at stake because what awaits us is glorious. And so this very week, set up the time, set it up even today to make sure that that part of the equation is all set right and then share, share with everyone, having set that right, how it is that you are able to be vaulted forward to make a great difference in alignment with the will of God from now on. Let's go. Let's catch people for Christ. Amen. Amen.